Welcome to Sermon Audio from King Street Church, where it's our purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. For more information about our church, please visit our website at kingstreetchurch.com. The text this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. I'll read it. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This morning, my prayer is that we would see how important it is to have a life that displays the gospel before others. When our lives are transformed so that we behold Jesus... And we are slowly becoming more like Him, transformed from glory to glory. We testify to the world that Jesus is real and that He is good and that He's the greatest treasure that you could ever have. That's what I want for us. You know, last week we saw um, that Paul's ministry displayed this very thing. It was a ministry of faithfulness. He depended on God to obey God, to please God. How? By sharing the gospel and sharing his own life with other people. And we realized how vitally important that is. So in the verses that we've read so far in chapter 2, Paul has given a defense for his ministry. Most likely what was happening, the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica were upset about the growth of Christianity. All these people are starting to receive Christ, and they're calling Jesus Lord. And so they would devise lies about Paul and his companions. This would have been very easy to do. During this time, there were a lot of traveling preachers, a lot of traveling teachers from different cults, different religions. And they would oftentimes not be very upright or holy men. It would be very easy to say that Paul was doing the same things that these other people were doing. But Paul is able, time and time again, to appeal in these verses to what the Thessalonians Thessalonians knew about him. Because Paul shared the pure gospel, because he lived out a gospel-centered life, there was no charge that anyone could rightly bring against him. And our passage this morning continues that theme. Look at verse 9. It starts with the words... For you recall, brothers. Paul is appealing to the memory of this church in order to give a defense for his ministry. And so I want you to notice something that's crucial in his defense. In these first 12 verses, Paul never appeals to his position as an apostle. In fact, in verse 6, he says, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority, meaning he could have, but he didn't. 
In this passage, Paul never appeals to his position, to his authority as a defense for his ministry. He also never appeals to skill. He doesn't appeal to his past success in planting other churches. You should listen to me because look at the work I've done in the past. Thousands of people coming to Christ. If anyone could have done that, appealed to these things, it would have been Paul. But this goes to show us that we need to be aware of people who demand that they must be believed or demand that they must be followed simply because of their position or simply because of their past success. Beware of somebody who might step on the scene and say, I come in the name of God, therefore you must listen to me. Just because. Or I'm a pastor, therefore you must follow and listen to everything that I say. Countless churches have been abused by people who do that. Now I'm not saying that God hasn't established certain types of authority in the church. He has. God has given the church elders and pastors I'm just recognizing that Paul doesn't appeal to anything like that in order to establish his ministry as credible and trustworthy. Instead, he appeals to the message that he preached and the life that he lived. There were no gimmicks, no tricks in his message. It was the pure, unadulterated gospel, and there were no questions about his life. It was lived on display for everyone to see, and the life that he lived shined a light on the gospel. Declare that, that that thing that I'm preaching is true. It's real. Friends, I want this for us. I want us to proclaim a faithful gospel and for us to live faithful lives. My prayer is also that our ministries would be ones of faithfulness. That if anyone has anything to say at all, that it would be that the message we proclaim is offensive. And they just don't like it. Or that the life we live is strange because we don't partake in the sin that other people do. But beyond that, I really don't have anything bad to say about them. I pray that 1 Peter 4 would be true for us. Verses 15 and 16. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. What a shame that would be. To suffer because... You're doing evil. Verse 16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. My hope is that the only thing the enemy could rightly say about us is that we're followers of Christ with an offensive gospel, with a weird message, with a foolish message. Not that we use tricks and gimmicks to win people over, Not that we live compromising lives just so we can be relevant in the culture. We want true converts. And nothing about winning people to dumb down half-true gospels and living your life however you want because you can follow Jesus and sin all you want. None, None of that creates true converts. We need a ministry of faithfulness. One of sharing the true and pure gospel one of living a true and pure life before others. I can't stress how important that is for any church. There's, there's nothing different about what we should be doing as a, no church, as a new church than a church of 400 people. But it's obvious, obviously clear and apparent 
in a new church like us how important living a faithful life is. Because we want people to come to know Christ. And we sit in this room, we say we want more people to come and worship Him and to love Him and to come to know Him. So the things that we see in this text need to be lived out among one another as well as the people that we're trying to reach with the gospel. You see, God used Paul's ministry to establish the healthiest church in all of Macedonia. And so we also want to preach a clear gospel and live a godly life in hopes that many would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for salvation and grow together as His people. This morning we're going to see four things about a faithful life in ministry. And while you might not be a pastor, you're a leader somehow. Someone's looking up to you and your influence is extremely important. You might be spiritually leading your children or an employee or an unbelieving friend or even someone that you're discipling in this church. Maybe it's another brother or sister that's a member and you're they're looking up to you and you're encouraging them in the word. And so these four things about a faithful life and ministry apply to all of us. We're going to see that a faithful life and ministry is sacrificial. That it is blameless. That it is fatherly. For you ladies, don't get tripped up on that. Paul's already mentioned motherly before. So there's a different aspect he's bringing in here. I hope you'll see it. And, and then fourth, it's purposeful. Sacrificial, blameless, fatherly, and purposeful. So let's begin with the first one. It shows up in our text in verse 9. We're talking about sacrifice. A faithful life in ministry is marked by sacrifice. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. What Paul's saying here basically is that he worked hard. And he did it night and day. The question we might have is what kind of work? What kind of work did Paul do? And, and why, why are we calling it a sacrifice? Aren't we all supposed to work? Like, why, why is that a sacrifice? Well, Paul's talking about working in such a way to make money. And we can know that for a couple of reasons. In verse 9, Paul said, He worked day and night so as not to be a burden to any of you, to the Thessalonian church. Now, that word burden is often used to describe some kind of provisional or financial burden. I think in 2 Thessalonians, right into the same church, he explains it more fully. He says almost the exact same thing, but look at what he adds. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. So just hold your place, flip over a couple pages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. In other words, Paul worked hard to make money, most likely as a tent maker or working with leather, so that he would not have to eat other people's bread without paying for it or have to rely on their hospitality or to live on their funds. He did this so he wouldn't be a burden. 
And it's important that Paul wasn't a burden to the Thessalonians because they were a church in Macedonia. And in Macedonia, it was a region full of war-torn tendencies. It was often stricken with poverty because it was unstable. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, Paul talks about the churches in Macedonia. He talks about these churches, and one of them would have been Thessalonica, along with Philippi and a few others. And this is what he says to the Corinthians. He says, he does this to encourage the Corinthians to be a giving people. He says, now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So they were giving church, but Paul's... Paul's making the point that these churches in Macedonia were in deep poverty. They were deeply poor. And so part of Paul's motherly care for them, as seen in verse 7, the fact that he was gentle with them like a mother who nurses her child, that's what verse 7 says, part of that is that he's gentle with them by not being a burden. So he worked. He didn't want to burden these poor Christians. Now that explains the work that he did and why he didn't want to be a burden, but why is that a sacrifice? Why is that considered a sacrifice? We have to understand, Paul did not think it was wrong for leaders of a church to receive financial support, even from the church that they're leading. Here's Paul's own words in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18. The elders, or the pastors, or shepherds, who rule well, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So Paul's quoting Scripture to establish a principle that pastors and teachers in the church are worthy of double honor. They're they're worthy of their wages. And when he does that, he almost makes it a command. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Now, I think that's important because Paul, almost by denying money from the Thessalonians, goes against his own words there. So Paul is not establishing a paradigm for bivocational ministry. He's not establishing a paradigm for not paying pastors. He almost does the opposite in 1 Timothy. He's setting up a paradigm that that should happen. So then what is he doing? Let's flip back to our passage that we used in 2 Thessalonians. So if you still have that place in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. As we read it, verse 8 establishes like we just saw why he didn't want to be a burden. But then verse 9 is going to show us the sacrifice. 2 Thessalonians 3, 8-9 through Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And here comes the sacrifice in verse 9. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. 
Paul clearly states, backing up his words in 1 Timothy 5, that he had every right to receive financial and provisional support from the Thessalonians, but he refused to take advantage of that right. And he did so so that he could be a model for how they should live. He's modeling whether or not pastor he's not he's not modeling whether or not pastors shouldn't be paid. He's modeling how the church members in Thessalonica should live their lives as citizens who aren't slothful but work for their bread. And so he's denying a right that was rightly his. I think we would all call that a type of sacrifice. He's deliberately sacrificing a right for the sake of discipleship, for being a model to them. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, so back in our text, we see it clearly. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. So Paul proclaimed the gospel while denying his right to be financially supported by the Thessalonians. Now, while he was in Thessalonica, he got some support from Philippi. And he got some support from his tent-making business that he did. But he sacrificed by refusing the right to receive financial support from the Thessalonians for the sake of the gospel. He did it for integrity. I imagine that he did it so no one could look at Paul and say, you are only preaching this stuff so you can be paid. And so friends, what does that mean for us? That's that's an apostle, that's an evangelist, that's a pastor. What does that mean for us? Well, I think it can make us ask the question, what rights are we willing to give up so that you can proclaim the gospel with integrity? So that no one looks at you and says, you're only sharing this so you can get what you want. I have seen far too often people proclaiming Christian liberty. Oh, in the sake of Christian liberty, I can can do this. And And they proclaim it in order to win arguments, in order to create division and separations in the church. But Paul laid down his liberty for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. This ought to remind us of Jesus who humbly lay down all that he has the right to for the sake of dying on the cross for sinners like you and me. You think living like this might show people what Jesus is like? You see why it's important to live a life of faithfulness along with your proclamation of the gospel? When we lay aside our rights for the sake of the gospel, we make the gospel we proclaim look absolutely wonderful. And so a faithful life in ministry is marked by sacrifice. But next we'll see that a faithful life in ministry is blameless. It's blameless. There'll be nothing bad that anyone could rightly say against you. They might say some bad things about you, but under further investigation, they're not true. Because your life is blameless. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, talking about the Thessalonians, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers. I think when we consider whether or not we're being faithful in the ministry, sometimes we're quick to jump to soundness. How sound is my doctrine? And we should. 
We must preach the truth. We must open up the Bible and rightly expose what it says to other people. We need to tell people what it means, and we should be accurate when we do that. But here Paul gives us three words. I don't know how well-versed you are in the language of English, like grammatically. I know you know how to speak it. But Paul gives us three words that describe something. Devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly. These are not adjectives. They're not devout, upright, and blameless. Because they're not adjectives modifying some noun, like Paul's doctrine. He's not, he's not saying our doctrine was blameless. Our faith was blameless. Our truth was blameless. Instead, he uses three adverbs to describe his action. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we, what? Behaved. In Paul's defense of his ministry, he points to his behavior. The Christian life is more than just a classroom where we discuss what we know. It's a life in which we follow Jesus and become transformed into His image. So dear brothers and sisters, you might be able to appeal to your doctrine, but how many of you feel comfortable appealing to your behavior? And some of you might hear that question and immediately start saying, well, that's legalism. Now you're just guilt tripping me. It's not. That's Christianity. The Bible says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or consider 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Time and time again, God says, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Of course we aren't perfect. Of course the holiness of Jesus has been credited to our account by grace. But if we are in Christ, we are called to behave like it. And God gives us the strength to do it. Now there's a few things to see here in this blameless life and ministry. If you'll notice, Paul says how we behaved toward you believers. Meaning, the behavior was more than just a personal and private devotion. It had a target. Do you see it? The, the behavior was action taking, taken towards the believers, towards the people and the church. He's talking about how he treated them, how he interacted with them. You know, it's one thing to be able to say that you have good behavior. But that's totally different than saying you've behaved blamelessly towards other individuals. Now the very obvious implication of this is that you must put yourselves in situations where that's even possible for you. You can't, you can't say this kind of thing. You can't say I've behaved blamelessly towards you if you're a recluse who sticks to yourself and just has your own private little devotion. It requires being in front of people and sharing your life with them. You know, I think it's a tragedy how often we think 
We only have a responsibility toward God, not to people. So long as we read our Bibles, so long as we pray, so long as we keep from egregious and open and obvious acts of personal sin, then we're being faithful. Friends, we are not being faithful if we're living life on our own. We're not being faithful if we, sh- if we fail to share our faith or to live our faith with God's people. Just think about it. Three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Of course I do. Do you love me? Of course I do. Do you love me? Jesus, you know all things. Of course I do. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Your love for me will be seen and expressed in your care for my people. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There are countless commands in the Bible calling for our love and our care for one another. There couldn't be anything more clear than that. That much of your faithfulness towards God will be in living it out towards other people. Not just before others, but towards others. You see the difference? Not just before God, not just living it out before others so they'll see it, but an upright, blameless behavior towards others. There is no, I'm only accountable to God in Christianity. You're ultimately accountable to God. He will ultimately be the one who judges us, but we're not only accountable to Him. Paul lived blamelessly toward the believers in Thessalonica because he knew it was important to live out his faith towards the church. So much so that he could say that both God and the Thessalonians were witnesses. I want you to think for a moment about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21. Paul says, We have regard... For what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Friends, there will be times in which you must do what men think is bad so that you can faithfully please God. If, if, if someone comes to you and tells you to stop preaching the gospel, this is what you do. You preach the gospel. You remain faithful to Christ. You remain faithful to God. But so much of our life... We'll be walking blamelessly before God and people. I mean, let's get rid of this super spirituality that thinks that the only thing that matters is our personal and our private devotion towards God. That so, so, so long as I pray and spend time to myself and just don't have any egregious sins, then I'm fine. We need to be like Paul, who behaved blamelessly towards the believers in Thessalonica. Friends, this is why your personal holiness is important. This is why your devotion to a church is important. You can't behave blamelessly towards people you never see. I want to grow in knowledge of the Lord, and I should. I hope you do. I want to go deeper in my doctrine, as should you. I want to see wonderful, beautiful, glorious things about God I didn't know yesterday, as should you. But I also deeply want to be changed by them. 
I want to love people like Jesus loves them. I, I don't just want to know these things for the sake of it, but I want to start viewing the world and viewing people the way God does and start relating to them differently. Loving them more, being more gracious, being more merciful. I want to behave blamelessly towards other people so that they can get a little taste of what Jesus is like. So friends, when you think about the faithfulness in your life and you think about the health of this church, how often do you consider your behavior towards one another? Is that on your priority list? A faithful life in ministry is blameless. And it's blameless towards God's people. The third thing that we'll see in this passage is that a faithful life in ministry is described as being fatherly. Now, Paul already described about how he treated them gently like a mother nursing her own child. That was verse 7. Now, he talks about treating them like a father would each of his children. This is verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Now here Paul has moved beyond talking about being gentle with them. You see, Paul was both gentle and pointed. He cared for them and he exhorted and he encouraged and he implored. So I want you to notice two things here in this fatherly ministry that he's describing. I want you to notice the nature of Paul's proclamation. And then I want you to notice the subjects of his proclamation, who he was proclaiming to. So first, the nature. Paul says he exhorted, encouraged, and implored. And implored just kind of means witnessed. Each one of these is important. Exhortation is urging, commanding, telling people what they ought to do. Urging them to believe in Christ, persuading them. It's getting in front of their face, calling them out on their sin and telling them plainly how they should live. It's challenging them in the midst of their false beliefs and calling them to believe in Christ, to believe in God's Word. That's exhortation. It's confronting people with the truth and calling people to believe rightly and to live rightly before God. But there's also encouragement and comfort. So that when someone is prone to doubt, when someone's prone to be dismayed, when someone questions whether or not Jesus loves them or God really cares, it's reminding that person of God's promises. It's lovingly pointing people to Jesus to behold Him and to remember all that He's done. Just picture for a moment a good father with his children. One day, they might be sluggish, they might be wayward. They might be extremely disobedient. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. And so the father has a stern word. The father has a serious word, an exhortation for how the child should live. But the next day, the child might be downcast. And so the father encourages the child by lifting up his or her chin, wiping away their tears. Friends, there's a time for both. There's a time for exhortation and comfort. There's a time to say with force, brother, stop looking to yourself 
and look to Christ. Cut it out. What are you doing? Do you know what He's done for you? And then there's a time to say softly, you've been looking at yourself way too much, haven't you? Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember what He's doing for you. Let me help you. Whether or not it's exhortation or encouragement, one thing's for sure, it's not only knowledge. Paul wasn't merely sharing information with people. The preaching and the proclamation of the gospel was done by exhorting and comforting and imploring. And friends, that's what you and I ultimately need. We need more than just more information in our brains. We need people who help us to hold on to it and to really believe it and to live it out and to be reminded of it the way a good father would sit down with his children and do it. This is one of the reasons why I encourage you to be involved in one another's lives throughout the week. Don't just let God's word go in one ear and out the other. Get in front of each other. Exhort each other. Comfort each other. Friends, that's why sometimes there might be things that sting in the sermon. And there also might be things that uplift you. And while it can be easier to take the encouragement than the exhortation, even if it stings, it is not to hurt you. It is not to damage you. It's to present you complete in Christ. So that's the nature of Paul's proclamation. It was filled with exhortation and comfort and witnessing. But look briefly at the subjects. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you. What that means is that Paul didn't just preach from the pulpit. He went beyond speaking to the church when they were gathered and he went into their homes and he pulled them over on the side of the street to have a conversation and he visited them while they're at work or while they're sick and he talked to them outside of the gathering, maybe afterwards, one-on-one conversations. He went to each person one by one and exhorted and implored and encouraged. Yes, you can shepherd God's people from the pulpit on Sunday. This is a part of it. But sometimes you have to do it by knocking on someone's front door. And if you're not a pastor, this is still relevant for you. So members of King's Tree, you need to realize that if you come in this room every Sunday and you're leaving unaffected, unchanged, and broken, you should reach out and say, I need a visit. I need a talk. Something's not right. We would love the opportunity, myself and Richard, to sit down with each one of you like a father, his own children. But friends, keep in mind that the Bible doesn't only call pastors to minister to one another. In the same letter, chapter 5, verse 11, same letter, chapter 5, verse 11, Paul tells them, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing. So I would say it's good to start by being here on Sundays and being a mutual encouragement to the other believers in this room. But someone in our church may need a phone call from you this week. They might need a visit. 
They might need you to knock on their front door. It could be an exhortation, a loving kick in the right direction. What are you doing? A shake of the shoulders. Wake up. Or it could be lifting them off the ground when they're in despair, but they need it. And friends, if you're the one getting the phone call, if you're the one having your door knocked on, it's not because your brother and sister wants to hurt you. It's because they care about your soul. Receive their correction. Thank God for their comfort. Be helped when someone tries to help you lift your eyes to Jesus. Friends, this is what God does for us. He disciplines us. He cares for us. He exhorts us. And He oftentimes uses His people to do it. So that's the third thing. A faithful life and ministry is like a father who exhorts and comforts each one of his children. And I hope you see as we describe what that is, both men and women can do that. This isn't just a father thing. This is an exhorting thing. This is a loving thing. This is a correction thing. This is a grabbing people by the arms and hugging them and helping them to follow Jesus. Lastly, we'll see that a faithful life in ministry has a purpose. It's purposeful. So verses 9 through 11 are not done for just kicks and giggles. Like, like we don't just do it because there's a reason. And the reason why we do verses 9 through 11 is given in verse 12. We know because it says so that. So all these things you do them so that, verse 12, you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Everything that Paul did was so the Thessalonian church would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls him. Now, now what does Paul mean there when he says that? Well, notice what he doesn't mean. He doesn't say that he did verses 9 through 11 so that they could have more knowledge only. Paul didn't labor among them so they would just be smarter and have a stronger theology or so they could critique the very weighty points of doctrine. He labored among them so they would walk, so they would live holy lives that brought glory and honor to God. We see this later in the same letter in chapter, in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. He says, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Paul's concerned with how these believers live. Now that, of course, includes their doctrine. Because so much of their doctrine and knowledge of God is going to impact how they live it out. But it includes also their entire lives. Paul wants the whole person to bring glory to God. His mind and his body. Her heart and her actions. I think one of the greatest texts to show this is in Colossians chapter 1. Paul has said the same thing multiple times throughout the New Testament. That, that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord who called you. Here's Colossians 1.10. Describes it perfectly. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Why? To please Him in all respects. 
bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there you have it. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord is walking in a way that pleases Him in all respects, which includes doing good works and growing in your knowledge and understanding of who He is. Now, if you aren't careful, you can take this passage and you can twist it. You can take good truth in the Bible and turn it into a destructive and deadly teaching. Because you could try to read this passage and say, Christianity is all about behavior. It's all about being a good person. And if we live right, that means we're Christians and we're going to heaven. That's not true. Paul's behavior mattered. And the walk of the Thessalonians mattered because glorifying God matters And God is sanctifying His people and making them more like Jesus. But we are not forgiven for our sins and reunited to God just because we started doing some good things. Instead, those good things flow out of being saved by God. We see that in this text. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Friends, we don't walk in a manner worthy of God to make Him call us. We don't coerce God's calling. We don't force His grace upon us. Instead, we walk worthy of the One who has called us and who is calling us. Our walk, our life should be in light of the One who first loved and pursued and called us to Himself. So friends, if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you need to know that you cannot make yourself right before God by your behavior. You cannot. Just try it. Just just go try to do this. Go try to successfully live a perfect, holy life worthy of God for just five minutes. We can only be made right with God by Jesus' behavior. His perfect And worthy life was offered on our behalf so that if you trust in Him, it will be credited to you. But in light of that, God now calls you to live for Him. He calls you to live a life that brings glory instead of ourselves' glory. You see, we don't do this to earn our salvation, but to honor and please the God who saves us. And when we fail to walk in a way that's worthy of Him, which we do every day, We should be saddened. We should repent. But then we should be overjoyed to know that God receives us not on the basis of our worthiness, but He receives us on the basis of Christ's worthiness. I love how the text said, "God, God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. There Paul has the end in mind. At the end, when we meet God face to face and we're glorified, we will then be made perfect. We will become like Christ. This is what Paul has in mind when he mentions God's kingdom. And throughout the Bible, the the idea of God's kingdom is His rule. His rule over His people and over the world. And of course, in Christ Jesus, this kingdom has already begun. Because He is head of His church. He rules in His church. He rules as Lord in our hearts. 
He's bought a people and he's winning them back to himself successfully. He's not failing. But Paul primarily has in mind here the end when everything is perfected and God's kingdom is brought to its consummation. So what's the point? Why does he bring this up? Why does he labor so that they would walk in a manner worthy of God, the one who calls them into his glory? Friends, Paul's reminding the Thessalonians of the great promises they have in Christ and the great calling that they have been called to as his people. And in beholding that reality, in remembering those promises and seeing them and living in light of them, Paul calls people to live worthy of it now. There is no faithful man or woman who says, I might as well just live it up now and do what I want. I'll settle down when I get to heaven. The goal is to recognize God's rule in Christ Jesus and to trust Him and to cling to His promises and to live to bring Him glory. That's what Paul has in mind here. Friends, my heart's desire is that we would be a church that's worth imitating. And a church that's worthy of being imitating, of being imitated, is a church that walks in a manner worthy of the God they love. So I pray that we would be an example to other churches like these Thessalonians were, that we would walk in a manner that brings glory to God, that we would cling to His promises, that He calls us into His kingdom and His glory and that's coming. And friends, to do this, we need to live faithfully. We need to do what Paul did, living faithfully in our lives and our ministries towards those around us. So let's take Paul's ministry to heart. Let's trust God that He can use our small and imperfect efforts to make His name known.